about the cabal. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The time now is 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces coming up. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, your weekly show that dives into the big issues affecting our communities and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here, as always, with the incomparable Jeff Simmons. Hey, Jeff, looking good on the radio today. Hey, Celeste, looking good, too. I hope all's well with you in your neck of the woods. Absolutely. So uh, obviously a lot of big news going on this week. I don't know if you had a chance to catch it last night, but President Biden's uh, joint uh, address to a joint session of Congress, lots of big ideas there. We'll see how many of them can actually be realized. But I thought he was sounding kind of a, you know, turning the corner type of uh, type of note there. What did you think? And I agree with you. That's how I felt. Look, you know, I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve here. I was inspired. I was looking forward to this uh, 100 days into his tenure. You know, it's very ambitious, but this is, you know, now the devil is in the details. The work has yet to be done on this. And uh, there was a story that just went up online a short while ago in The New York Times about now it's up to our senator, Chuck Schumer. He has his work cut out for him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that we're really going to have to think about. But we do have, uh, you know, very much a a new day here, just in terms of the optics, even. And I know a lot of people have been commenting on that in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of seeing a female vice president and a uh, a female speaker of the House there. Certainly, uh, you know, something, a new, a new look, if you will. And it was interesting just seeing the optics of uh, how different it is. It was really a speech of our times. Uh, but, you know, the idea that there were so many fewer people in the chamber, people still wearing masks, although uh, new CDC regulations, maybe uh, outdoors at least, the, uh, the masks can come off a little bit if you are vaccinated. Yeah, and as, as Celeste is bringing this up, I'm thinking about how we watched the War of the Egos again today here in New York State in New York City as uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio said that, what, New York would be fully reopened by July 1st. And then a short while later, our governor said, well, maybe even earlier. You know, it's basically a whole war over who has the bigger ego here. Yeah, I think that's something that we've seen going back, remembering uh, even the issue of closing down playgrounds in New York City. I remember that very early on in the pandemic where people were like, you know, where they were fighting over who was going to do that. And uh, was it big footing or was it caution closing uh, schools or partially closing schools? A lot of things like that sort of become a, a turf war. And uh have to say that is not particularly unique as far as New York politics goes, especially when it comes to uh, this particular mayor and this particular governor. And I will say that there's been some coverage recently of this, and I've enjoyed watching this about Mayor de Blasio finally having fun. You know, it seems like he's lightening up because we're, you know, nearing, what is it, eight months now left of his tenure? Uh, You know, and so 
I think, I mean, there was a very strong quote. Unfortunately, I don't have it in front of me when asked about uh, uh, the, the governor's comments today, how the mayor responded to that about, uh, you know, about the charges, the sexual harassment charges against him, among other uh, issues involving like the uh, the scandal involving nursing homes in the state. Yeah, right. That's that's definitely been uh, something to watch. And, uh, you know, lots of other things in the news, too. Uh, and, you know, it's, since you mentioned the uh, the whole scandal issue, uh, obviously something that people are talking about a lot. And we are actually going to talk about on this program uh, in just a little bit with uh, one of our guests. And we'll want to hear from you a little later on the program as well. But uh, obviously a lot of headlines regarding one of the uh, the longtime and, uh, you know, Top tier, I would say, mayoral candidates, uh, Scott Stringer, um, former aide to him uh, from his campaign way back in 2001 uh, when he ran for public advocate, uh, accusing him of uh, sexual misconduct. Uh, Scott Stringer, of course, has uh, denied that he uh, engaged in any wrongdoing. We have invited him on the program uh, to discuss those uh, allegations in more detail. But she's describing, uh, you know, some some very, uh, you know, very disturbing uh how should I say, uh, behaviors or activities, groping, uh, demanding sex from her, asking her to, you know, keep quiet about it. I don't know, Jeff, what do you think? I mean, it's, uh, it's been quite a while since she said this happened, but we're, we're living in an environment where people are saying that we need to listen to women who are talking about this. Yeah. And I believe she's saying this happened, uh, back when I think he might've still been in the New York state assembly at that point. Uh, and uh, this is before he was married to his uh, before he got married. Uh, but it is yeah, 20 years ago. And as Celeste said, we did reach out to his campaign today uh, to see if he would like to come on to be able to discuss this. He was making the rounds today on television to be able to say his side of the story here. But as this is happening, more folks have been reversing their endorsements. Uh, of him at this time. I mean, we saw uh, Senator, uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos already remove her endorsement yesterday. A union removed its endorsement today. And then we also uh, watched as several of his competitors running for mayor have said that he should drop out of the mayor's race. One of those, Celeste, was uh, yeah. candidate Maya Wiley, who uh, who yesterday did not call on that, but then just a short while ago, a few hours ago, if I'm correct, might have even been about two or so hours ago, said that she believes the woman, the best case scenario in this story is that Scott Stringer does not understand when someone has said no, and she called on him to withdraw from the New York City mayoral race. Yeah, it's, you know, it's very interesting that we're, we're looking at this right now, uh, obviously with the continuing uh, investigation into Governor Andrew Cuomo, his conduct. Uh, he has asked people to reserve judgment on, on the allegations from multiple women, uh, multiple uh, former members of his staff and so on. Uh, you know, until there's until there's been a real inquiry into this, uh, some people, of course, have called on him to resign, uh, telling uh, telling him that it's time that he step aside so that uh, the work of New York can actually keep getting done. You know, it's 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 interesting in that regard. We've seen uh, in other states, uh, you know, n less related, I think, to this kind of misconduct, but certainly a recall effort going on right now in in California, and it's sort of raised for me the issue of of elections in general and. What uh, you know? What qualifies and when uh, as a reason to call on somebody to step down, and when they should do it? No, and I agree. And we've watched this 
as you well know, Celeste, given your mm-hmm. years of reporting, your decades of reporting, oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just, we, um, you know, uh, these things happen so swiftly. I mean, but then again, you look at what's happened with Governor Cuomo over the last few months, and he's staunchly defending himself, even made more remarks today in that case. So, uh, and defending himself. We're going to get to our first guest right now. Uh, that brings us to our first guest, Diane Morales. She was one of the earliest folks to throw her hat into the ring to become the next mayor of New York City. I want to tell you a little about her if you are not familiar. Born and raised in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, graduate of Stuyvesant High School, which is the school system, by the way, she eventually worked for. She was a public school teacher, and later, while working at the New York City Department of Education, she helped open the Office of Youth Development and School Community Services under then-Chancellor Joel Klein, served as its chief of operations for two years, and also she served as director of the Teaching Commission, which is a national task force that focuses on improving teaching quality in American schools. And more recently, she served as the longtime executive director and CEO of Phipps Neighborhoods. Candidate Diane Morales, welcome to WBAI. Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So wonderful to have you on today. We're going to get to some of the issues of the day, but we thought it would be good because we did have Andrew Yang on last week where we talked with him about polling and where he stood. Uh, we know it's early. We know we have you know, a number of weeks left. Uh, but, you know, as we're moving ahead in these final weeks in the home stretch, you know, given the polls, what are you, you know, what are you going to be doing to get your message out there? What sets you apart? Sure. Um, so, as you know, you know, I, as I hope you know, a couple of weeks ago, my campaign put out a statement um, essentially announcing that we would be taking a step back from the, you know, the proliferating, proliferating um, Zoom forums for the for the mayoral race and actually doing what it is that we think we need to do in order to connect with the communities. Uh, that the campaign seeks to, to really represent to the working class, um, you know, low-income black and brown immigrant communities who we know don't have the the benefit or the privilege of sitting at home for hours at a time on on, a Zoom, on Zoom forums. So we've launched a Politics for All People tour. We are, you know, uh, going around the entire city and, and bringing the race and bringing my campaign specifically to the communities. Um, and it's it's been great so far. We are, you know, really picking up some momentum, and we anticipate that that's only going to increase as uh, as we get closer to the primary. So thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. And um, I think listeners would be interested to hear, you know, what is your take on the current mayor, the, the Blasio mayoralty? Uh, you know, what, what, is there something in there that you would uh, reverse right away among his policies or something that you think he's doing a good job on and would keep? What sets you apart from him? Yeah, you know, so I think I think the current administration started off with a lot of um, a lot of promise, a lot of hope. I certainly was a big a big supporter, um, but I, I think there's been a, a significant disconnect or, or misalignment, if you will, between the vision and the execution. Uh, for the most part, I, I do say I do think, uh, and I do think it's fair to say that the um, the addition of UPK, uh, although again. The execution of it might not have been, uh, you know, uh, might have left a little bit to be desired. Uh, the, the ultimate outcome was great and beneficial, and I think that that's actually probably 
going to end up being a, a, a signature part of his legacy, if not if not the signature part. Um, the flip side of that is, you know, we look at things like housing and, and how that situation has, um, in fact, not gotten better. The, the increase in the, the rise in the number of homeless um, in the city and, and actually the, the real failure to, uh, to, to create affordable, truly affordable housing for, for the average New Yorker, I think, is, is problematic. So, you know, I think that's part of what I bring to the table that's different, uh, significantly different from this current administration. Uh, I have a history and a career of experience in actually making the direct connections between a vision and, and the execution and being successful in getting things done. So uh, I want to just bring up something that happened this week. The mayor unveiled his $98.6 billion spending plan this Monday and actually painted a rosier picture than expected, predicted added spending would help to jumpstart the city's recovery. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you've had a chance to uh, to review the uh, announcement and do you believe him? Do you, you know, did you believe what this budget uh, presents or you felt that there should have been uh, significant changes in it? Um. So, you know, we started to look into, to, to dig into the budget, um, you know, not quite ready to, to have a, you know, a, an official sort of formal reaction to it. It, it is a little bit of a mess. Um, I, I do, um, I, I, you know, there's a couple of things that I've made note of. Uh, you know, we, we really haven't actually, it doesn't look like the budget really has prioritized real community needs, you know, increasing housing vouchers, um, you know, so that people can, can be stable. Um, or, or, you know, restorative justice or transformative justice initiatives in schools, I think, are two things that come to mind, while at the same time increasing the NYPD's, you know, already uh, bloated budget, I think is is highly problematic and and not removing police from schools um, and adding a new precinct. You know, I I think those are flags for me and the initial sort of cursory review um, that this is yet another um, budgetary failure on our part. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is Driving Forces here on WBAI New York. Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons, we're speaking to Diane Morales. She is a candidate for mayor of the city of New York. And I wanted to ask you just to stay on the police for one minute. Uh, you know, talking about the defund the police movement, is that something that you support uh, broadly defunding the police? Or are there other specifics that you would really take away from, uh, roles that you would take away from law enforcement? You mentioned uh, taking officers out of schools, for example. Can you just elaborate a little? Yeah. Yes. So, so yes, I, I think, you know, I think we need to, the bottom line is that somehow, somewhere along the line, public safety and policing uh, were, have been equated um, in, in conversation and in sort of um, the paradigm of, of what it means to be safe. And I think we need to reclaim that and redefine that. It, the, the police, the NYPD has proven that uh, they are not actually effective at keeping some of our most vulnerable communities safe. Um, and the reality of it is that in many cases, uh, the, the, the calls that they're responding to are not calls that they signed up for. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, we know that there's a significant percentage of calls that are around social issues like homelessness and mental health services and substance abuse. And so I've actually called for decreasing the police budget, uh, defunding the police by $3 billion and actually beginning an investment in what I'm, we're calling the Community First Responders Department, which would essentially be a department of personnel who are trained and skilled at intervention and de-escalation in these situations um, and actually able to connect people in crisis to a larger ecosystem of human service providers, of m- medical support of mental health services 
so that we're actually breaking the cycle and that the intervention is actually uh, customized to meet the need rather than um, sending a, an officer in to respond to situations like this, where we know in the best case scenario, someone will get you know, locked up and released overnight, uh, you know, the next day into the very same situation. And in the worst case scenario, they, they get harmed or shot and killed. So we need to actually do something different so that we can begin to address the, the real needs and, and provide for the things that help to actually build safer communities. Just to follow up quickly on that, obviously, uh, in New York and elsewhere, we have been dealing with an unfortunate spate of crimes against AAPI New Yorkers. Some of that mm-hmm. may have to do with coronavirus. Some of that may have to do with general bias. Not all those crimes are classified as hate crimes. But what do you say to people who are concerned that uh, cutting uh, funding to law enforcement uh, would uh, either contribute to an increase in crime or would leave certain populations like the AAPI community vulnerable or maybe uh, LGBTQ, uh, you know, other other New Yorkers who who need uh, the protection of, uh, of law enforcement because they're targeted yeah. specifically for who they are? Sure. Um, so, so what I would say is that, you know, uh, there hasn't actually really been a, a decrease in funding um, of the police department in the city. Um, and despite that, we have seen these, uh, in, you know, this, this spike in uh, these, these hate crimes or these violent incidents. So there is, you know, there is not quite the correlation between increasing police presence and, and, and reducing violence that people uh, seem to think. Um, I, I also think that, you know, police respond to crimes. They don't actually uh, prevent crime. So, you know, they're, they're, they're being called after the fact anyway. Um, the, the final thing I'll say is that in terms of this increase in, in violence, it's really hard to decouple that from the increased, the significantly increased insecurity that New Yorkers have experienced over the course of the last 14 months. We're talking about a city that has failed to guarantee housing, that has failed to make sure that everyone had food on the table, and that has failed actually to provide universal access to health care in the middle of a pandemic. So we have increased exponentially the sense of insecurity and instability among New Yorkers. And there is no doubt in my mind that we cannot decouple those things from the spike in violence that we've seen because people are desperate um, and people are frustrated and people are struggling right now. So I think we need to actually address the, the sort of basic issues um, and, and my contention is that if we are able to do that successfully, then mm-hmm. we will see a corresponding decrease in crime and violence. I do want to bring up the issue that really has been, uh, uh, you know, in the news consistently over the last, what, 48 hours here, what Celeste and I talked about at the top of the show, and that is the allegation against one of your competitors, Scott Stringer. Several candidates have said he should drop out of the race right now. One of your uh uh, one of the other candidates, Maya Wiley, yesterday did not, but then today said that he should withdraw from the race. Yesterday, you said you were basically digesting, processing the news yeah. yourself. Have you changed your mind? Should Scott Stringer stay in this race or drop out at this point? Yeah, so that's a fair question. I, I think that you know one of the other layers for us over the last twenty-four hours or so, in particular, you know, I have a I have a majority led team, um, many of whom are also survivors. And, and to be quite frank, uh, we've been focused on, I've been focused on um, kind of taking care of my team 
Um, we are we are in the process of um, putting something together, and I think that you can anticipate that we will be making a public statement before the end of the day. Um, but really, you know, it's been really hard to. We haven't been very focused on 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 Scott Stringer. We've been very focused on on this, you know, uh, on this courageous woman uh, who has stepped forward and you know at a at a tremendous cost to herself and the you know the impact that it's had on on each and every one of us. So, um, you know, we're going to ask for just a little bit more grace in that. But we are we will uh, you can anticipate that we will be making a statement soon. And the only follow up question I have uh, on that is, you know, I watched how uh, this uh, snowballed with Andrew Cuomo and there were immediate calls mm-hmm. for him to resign when for the mm-hmm. first allegations had surfaced. So how do you differentiate between Andrew Cuomo and Scott Stringer? Mm-hmm. I don't. Quite frankly, um, I, you know, I, I think that if you are uh, a, a public servant, a public leader, um, you know, your, your responsibility is to, uh, you know, make sure that you are, you know, serving as a, you can serve as a model, um, a, a model to protect and care for our most vulnerable. And, um, you know, we know that that women, women of color, um, are, are among our most vulnerable. And, and so I, I think they need to be held to the same standard, essentially. Uh, I'm curious, kind of relatedly, uh, you know, you're the, uh, you're the only uh, one of the, uh, how should I say, you're the only Latina in the race, I believe, you know, uh, yeah. lots of men in this, uh, in this contest. I'm curious, it's kind of a different perspective, but if someone on your staff were accused of the kinds of behavior that, uh, Scott Stringer or Andrew Cuomo has been accused of, would you dismiss mm-hmm. them immediately or would you uh, expect there to be some sort of an investigation or inquiry? Uh, you know, I think that unfortunately we've come into a, a time in public life where this is something that leaders have to grapple with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, balancing sort of that decision making, the safety of their staffs, uh, public perception. Mm-hmm. You know, how would you handle something like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I think someone on my staff is, is protected by labor laws and due process and those kinds of things. I think that's a different standard than um, someone who not only is currently in a public, you know, public servant role, but is also um, actively pursuing, um, you know, one of the, the, the most significant leadership roles you know, the, the most significant leadership role in our city, if not if not in our country, second to the president. So, you know, I, I think there, there, are, there are, in fact, different standards, and that is the price that we all have to sort of bear as, as folks who seek these types of positions. Um, you know, someone on my, on my team would, would, you know, not be, in this, not be comparable, I think, to, to an Andrew Cuomo or a, or a Scott Stringer, Although I do, I, as a survivor myself, um, I do, you know, strongly support the notion of, of believing women. Um, for, for, for too long, we have had to bear the burden of, of proof, um, and we pay a significant price in just actually verbalizing and being public about, about these experiences. So I don't underestimate the impact or the burden um, on women who, who have the courage to step forward. And we just have about a minute left. I want to go to a topic that we talked about with Andrew Yang last week after he had done an interview with the Daily News and talked about 
uh, if I have this correct or incorrect, Celeste, correct me then, but about how it's time, you know, we are overdue to have a woman as mayor of New mm-hmm. York City. <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on that, because I don't want to come across as sexist to say, you know, you know, why don't we have a woman a- as mayor? You know, uh, why you know, tell our listeners why you feel if you feel this way, it is time for a woman and maybe a woman who is a progressive mm-hmm. candidate to become mm-hmm. mayor of New York City. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do believe that. I, I think, you know, there is evidence that suggests that women um, are more effective at negotiating um, and getting legislation passed. I think that is something that um, is a reflection of our, you know, our orientation, whether that's through socialization or otherwise, to, to care for others, um, to be less egocentric in the way that we that we lead. And I think that that, you know, that is a critical piece to, to be conscious of at this, particularly at this moment in time, in where we are in the course of our history. I also think it's really fascinating if you look around the world throughout the course of this, this global pandemic at the countries that, that navigated it and managed it best and were sort of best able to begin to recover. Those countries were also led by women. Um, and I think that that is a significant indicator of what is possible. Um, and I think that New Yorkers deserve that. New Yorkers deserve to be cared for. They deserve to be prioritized. Um, and they deserve someone who is effective at getting that done. And that's why I think it is time for not just a woman. I think it's time for me to become mayor of New York City. <laughs> and on that note, Diane Morales, where can people find out more about you and your campaign for mayor? Sure. Um, so our website is uh, www. Diane.nyc, and Diane is spelled with two N's, D-I-A-N-N-E dot N-Y-C. And across all of our social media platforms, including TikTok, we are at Diane, D-I-A-N-N-E, the number four N-Y-C, Diane four N-Y-C. Great. Diane Morales, thank you so much for joining us on Driving Force today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Celeste and Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. So you've been listening to WBAI New York. This is Driving Forces. I am Jeff Simmons here with Celeste Katz-Marston. And we just heard from candidate Diane Morales. She's running to become the next mayor of New York City. Last week, we spoke with another candidate, Andrew Yang. And we've also had conversations with Eric Adams and Sean Donovan. And we hope to bring you more of those interviews in the run-up to the election. And we are going to get to our next guest in just a moment, but want to take a very, very brief time out and remind you that WBAI relies on your support to stay on the air, bring you commercial free, independent free speech radio programming. You can help us out by going to WBAI.org and becoming a BAI buddy in the name of your favorite show. Maybe it's Driving Forces. Maybe it's City Watch, which uh, Jeff is co-hosting on Sundays now. But check it out, WBAI.org. BAI.org. Your donation of uh, uh, any amount is certainly most welcome. This is a 501c3 nonprofit. Your your, uh, contribution is tax deductible. WBAI.org. Please check it out. 
And that is going to bring us to our next guest. Speaking of other uh, important public institutions, how's that for a segue, Jeff? Uh, <laughs> we're happy to welcome to the program uh, somebody whose name may very well be familiar with you. has had a, a lot of roles in a lot of important public institutions. Dennis Walcott is the president and CEO of Queens Public Library, one of the nation's largest public library systems with 66 locations in the beautiful borough of Queens. He is the former chancellor of the New York City Department of Education, overseeing a system of more than 1.1 million kids in 1,800 schools. Prior to that, which is I think when I met him, he was Deputy Mayor for Education and Community Development during the Bloomberg administration. He's also been the President and Chief Executive Order of the New York, of the New York Urban League. Uh, big news today, obviously, Queens Public Library just announcing plans to reopen along with other systems. And I'm just going to jump in here for one more second and say that in full disclosure, my co-host Jeff Simmons has been doing some work with the Queens Public Library system, which is quite admirable. But for the most part, I'm going to do the talking here in this next segment. So Dennis Walcott, nice to talk to you again. Welcome back to WBAI. And Celeste, it's great to talk to you, and even though probably you'll be doing all the talking, and great to talk to Jeff as well. <laughs> so absolutely, we're here, Jeff. I'll, I'll give you a break. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you start off with the first question? Oh, me started yeah. off. Okay. Yeah, you. No, the, the, the other <laughs> well, Jeff that hosts this program. With that, that's great. So um, it's great to have you on the show. You know, uh, I've been working with you, so I'm gonna, of course, let Celeste do most of this, but. Uh, getting into this, can you first just give our listeners a sense of the scope of the Queens Public Library System so they know about the size and magnitude of the Queens Library System? So pre-pandemic, we had 65 and 66 branches open, and we were roughly serving 11 million people a year. People would walk through our doors or just coming to a library or receiving program services. And we always like to say that every Queens resident lived a mile to a mile and a half of a Queens Public Library. So our scope was broad and wide and deep as far as uh, the richness of our programs. And then, obviously, when the pandemic started, we had to stop. And then our team did an excellent job in ramping up virtually as quickly as possible. I mean, they did it so fast. And now we've been running virtual programs, and just to pick up on a point that Celeste made in the introduction, uh, what we're talking about today, as she indicated, are the three systems, the New York Public Library, which covers Manhattan, Bronx, Staten Island, the Brooklyn Public Library System, and the Queens Public Library System. And on May 10th, we'll be opening uh, our locations, 55 in total, to more than the grab-and-go services that currently are going on. People will be able to browse as well as they'll be able to use the computers. Great. So are people going to have to wear masks? Will there be capacity limits? How, how is this going to look? It's going to be different, I think, than the library experience we all knew and loved uh, before coronavirus. That is so correct. I mean, and thank you for asking the question. It will be totally different. People will definitely have to be masked. And there'll be time limits as far as both the use of the computers as well as the browsing as well. And the capacity level will be a very small percentage. And I think our teams and the teams of Brooklyn and New York have been very diligent as far as measuring out the space and the capacity level. So anywhere from 25, 30% capacity, depending on the layout of the library. And um, some of it is walk-in, and you'll be able to walk in and use computers. The computers will be 
socially distant from each other, and we'll make sure everything is sanitary. And we'll be quickly uh, ramping up over the next several months, in addition to the 55, to more of the libraries throughout the three systems that will serve as browsing and computer sites as well. And uh, speaking of the importance of libraries, you know, everyone likes to talk about how important libraries are, and they certainly have been in my life, and I know in Jeff's life and, and in your life. Um, but if we look at the, uh, the executive budget that the mayor's just put out, we're looking at cuts of something like $10 million uh, to the library systems, all three library systems, including almost $3 million cut to the Queens Public Library. What is it going to mean if those cuts go through? What are we going to lose? Well, the potential is that we'll have to cut back on service hours and or days as well. And we're analyzing the budget now. The city council has been extremely, extremely diligent in making sure that the support for the libraries will continue, so we're going through the process now, and we'll be having testimony, I think, in another two weeks before the city council on the impact of the executive budget. But it could be very dire as far as the systems are concerned. But on the flip side, uh, the mayor's budget also includes additional money to the systems for capital projects as well. So each system will receive additional $20 million to build on top of the existing existing capital money that's there for renovations and other type of work that needs to be done. So it's a mixed budget, and we're going to be very focused as far as trying to get full restoration of at least where we were the last time. Just thinking back, um, you know, to, to my childhood, my experience with libraries and walking in there with my paper library card, you know, that had a little, it had like sort of a little metal card in it that they could uh, sort of do an imprint of and librarians stamping my book. You know, obviously things have already changed a lot since then, but going forward, what, what do you think the library experience is going to look like for people, you know, post-pandemic? Are there some things that have changed that were ideally going to be temporary that are going to change now forever? Or, you know, what's, what's the future uh, when you walk into a library five years, ten years from now? So I think part of the library future will depend on the health metrics of what's happening in the city, the state, and the country itself. I mean, our goal is to uh, ramp up as quickly as possible, but of course as safely as possible for our staff and our customers. And so you will always see what is now in place at a number of our libraries, the PPE screens and other types of safety uh, supports that are there for the staff and the customers. Uh, so that'll be something. And, you know, our goal is to really make sure we're able to open our buildings in total. But again, we have to be very conscious of the metrics of the health indices and the city and especially in the various areas within the city. So we're going to be monitoring that closely. I think you'll see some appointment-based services more than before. Um, so in the past, you know, we would have our classes and programs for a variety of purposes. And I think some of that in the beginning will be more focused on making appointments to receive some of those programs so we can control the overall number. Uh, in addition to that, on the plus side, I think you will see the continuation of the virtual world as well. I mean, unfortunately, we had to go through the tragedy of the pandemic and still live with that. But I think people have become a little better at the virtual world. Um, so I think with our programs that we offer, you'll see that for those who may not be able to get to the library itself. And, and I think the other key thing is, and I've talked about this 
several times is the pandemic really exposed the disparity and inequities that are out there as far as those who have and those who don't have. And so I think by us opening our doors, we at least give access to people who need to take advantage of the computer world and having computers available to them. And also what we instituted over the last several months is remote printing as well. And so that will continue where people who may not have a printer at home will be able to send their document into their local library and it will be waiting for them to be picked up, just like if you reserve a book. So I think you're going to see a mixed bag, but a lot of it is dependent on the health metrics that take place throughout the country, throughout the city and the state and where we fit into that. Because one other final point to your question, it, you know, people say, well, how come guys didn't open soon? I mean, we are, if you really think about it, the only true free institution where anybody can walk through our doors and one without ask, you know, what's your background, what race are you, what religion, what's your sexual persuasion. It doesn't matter. We don't care. But at the same time, we have to make sure once we open the doors wide, we have the systems in there to make sure that our customers and our staff stay safe. Dennis Walcott, thanks so much for joining us today here on Driving Forces to talk about uh, the Queens Public Library and the uh, the citywide library system. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, they can go to our uh, website, queenslibrary.org, queenspubliclibrary.org, and May 10th is the key day. It's the next step in our phase opening as far as opening our doors even wider to the public for browsing and computer services. So. Uh, they can get information from any of the three systems, New York Public Library, the Brooklyn Public Library, or the Queens Public Library, and just go to our respective websites and it'll list the various branches that will be open for uh, the browsing as well as for the computer use. Well, amazing. We'd love to have you uh, come back uh, after we've seen how this goes and give us an update. Look forward to it. Thank you so much. Great. It's a pleasure to talk to you again, and Jeff as well. Thank you so much. That was Dennis Walcott. He is the president and CEO of the Queens Public Library. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I am Celeste Katz-Marston and... And I'm Jeff Simmons, the co-host of Celeste Katz-Marston. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, one thing I do want to bring up because, and then I know we're going to uh, open up the phone lines, but I had listened to another interview he had done and it really took me back to my childhood because he's not much older than me, but he talked about growing up how he just loved the Hardy Boys books. And I just remember growing up and loving them, but uh, I was, it was them and Encyclopedia Brown books that I read. What about you, Celeste? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, girls at the time, there were girl books and boy books. So girls read Nancy Drew. And I remember having, I don't know, for some reason we had somebody gave us or uh, I don't know how it happened. We didn't go out and buy them, but we had this huge stack of old uh, hardcover Nancy Drew books. But yeah, absolutely grew up in a uh, uh, public library, used to uh, participate in those contests where, you know, over the summer you would see how many books you could read and they put up like a sticker with your name.